Okay, I'm Mike. I'm an alcoholic. Okay, tell the truth. Got to thank Jesse for asking me to speak. He's going to get you flowers, but the light turned green. Um, <laughs> um, hopefully, we're going to have some fun. Um, we got newcomers, uh, a couple of newcomers. Hopefully, they're still stick around. I think uh, Tyler and Oren, yeah, hey, welcome home, you guys. You know, uh, what I learned is that uh, A can't open the gates of heaven and let us in, but we can't open the gates of hell and let you out, man, you know, and, and welcome home. Um, we got a big holiday coming up, a drinking holiday, New Year's. So, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you what my sponsor told me. He said, uh, stay out of slippery situations. Don't play leapfrog with a unicorn. <laughs> could, <laughs> could be a lot of fun, or it could go sideways. Uh, and uh, happy birthday, Hillary and Reuben, and uh, my little brother Tim. Man, such a blessing to have you in my life. You know, front row seat. Um, get a new sponsee. Awesome, awesome, and thank you, Ken. All right, let's do it. Um, you know what, before I begin, there was a little little one here. Ruben's relative was here, and it reminded me of a really early in sobriety. I heard the best definition of an alcoholic that I've ever heard. There was a guy that was, had about 17 years of sobriety, and he was a single father, and he used to bring his small son to meetings, and um, this kid only knew a sober dad. And at the break, I went back to get a cup of coffee, and this little kid's hanging out by the coffee, and uh, cookies really, and, uh, and I asked this kid, I said, uh, you know what's going on here? And this little kid goes, yeah, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, okay, <laughs> what's an alcoholic? And this little kid looks up at me, four years old, and he says, an alcoholic is somebody who laughs and smiles a lot and doesn't drink alcohol. <laughs> So, with your permission tonight, we're going to laugh and smile a lot and not drink alcohol, okay? <laughs> Rule 62, do not take yourself so damn seriously. Um, and I love that on, and on page 132, it says something to the effect that uh, non-alcoholics are shocked at the merriment we find in our tragic experiences. <laughs> we laugh at the you know, so feel free to laugh anytime, right? Um, so, born and raised in Venice, where the debris meets the sea. Some of you might be familiar with that haven of debauchery. I was uh, one of four illegitimate children. We had three different fathers. All of us did had different color hair. We were quite the genetic cesspool. Um, looked up my family tree. There was two dogs peeing on it. <laughs> I grew up in a really, really bad neighborhood. It was called my family. Um, you know, in a couple years in sobriety, I finally had the courage to ask my mom who my dad was. And, you know, she said, well, you better sit down. And, oh, okay. And then... Uh, She's looking at me and she goes, your dad was a Catholic priest. <laughs> you can laugh. That, now, <laughs> now, I grew up Catholic, so I know that's like, I was not planned. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, so she's looking at me with this mortified look on her face. And I'm looking back at her and I, and I couldn't tell her what I was thinking. Because what I was thinking was what you're thinking. And I was thinking, Mom, you dirty little tramp. You've been a very naughty girl. <laughs> you know? It was suddenly like I, I was in an episode of Mari. You know? Father, you are the father. <laughs> My birth certificate was an apology letter from a condom company. I'm <laughs> um, 
So, growing up really poor, uh, no father around, so we grew up really poor, super poor. Um, you know, it's funny, we were watching Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood today, and my wife says, oh, did, there's a scene, did you ever go to the Van Nuys Drive-In? I said, honey, we never had a car <laughs> growing up, you know, it's like, no, you know. And then there was like a scene about a broken antenna on a house. She goes, did you ever have an antenna? I said, no, we never had a house, <laughs> you know. I mean, it was just like, we were so poor, we went to KFC to lick other people's fingers, man. That's how poor we <laughs> We were. Um, grew up in total filth, a lot of insecurities behind that, a uh, lot of physical abuse, a lot of emotional abuse, um, both was really, really bad. Um, just it was chaos in my house. And, and then I was the only redhead in the family, I was the only redhead in the neighborhood, only redhead in the school as far as I was concerned. And, you know, I got picked on a lot and, uh, until I had a gross spurt and became this little street fighter thing. But. Um, but don't feel too bad for me. Um, I did have about 25 girlfriends in grammar school and junior high. Uh, unfortunately, none of them knew that. Uh, <laughs> if I'm going to be rigorously honest, <laughs> my first girlfriend was a magazine. Uh, just saying. Um, okay, so when I was about 14, that's when I crossed that invisible line. I was drinking some beers with some friends, picked up the phone, called her, and her was this girl that I had this serious crush on, asked her out, she said yes. That was it, liquid courage, social lubricant, the missing ingredient in life, and I found it. I'd been drinking pretty consistently from the age of about 12, and using, uh, but that's when the bells and the whistles went off, honestly, that's when I saw the rainbows and the unicorns, and, and um, you know, I think all of us cross that line, that invisible line. At some point in time, we cross that invisible line where we realize that we're walking around life three drinks shy of comfortable. And that was when I, I knew, I knew that. That was the answer right then and there. You know, there's a line in the uh, third edition in one of the stories that I love, and it says, alcohol gave me wings to fly, but it took away the sky. I still relate to that. You know, I still relate to that. When I was about 15, I started working at this uh, liquor market and everyone there uh, drank. We were all alcoholics and half of us were dealers, uh, including the owners. And it was just crazy. You know, we would just drink the entire shift. And, um, you know, we did other things too. It was in Venice. Let's put it this way. It snowed a lot in Venice year round. <laughs> it's an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and I do believe in singleness of purpose, but I will say this. I did do um, cocaine and quaaludes once for 10 years. Uh, <laughs> I just want to go on the record and say, I hated cocaine, I just liked the way it smelled. <laughs> All right, so let's get back to my, my, my first mistress and that was drinking. Uh, by the time I was 18, they, they made me night manager and gave me the keys to the store. Let your alcoholic mind run with that concept just for half a second. Not good, right? So now I had access to alcohol 24-7, nonstop. Kept that party going. Run out alcohol, two, three, four in the morning, no problem. Just go down the store, stock up, kept it going, man. By the time I was 19, I already knew I was an alcoholic. The, the, the pack that I rang out, or hung out with, we were all alcoholics, but we were functioning alcoholics, so to speak. You know, we were living on our own. We were still going to school. We had girlfriends. We had, well, you know, but we was just rationalizing and justifying our debauchery. Um, and we used to brag about being alcoholics. We would say things like, better a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. Or uh, drink triple, see double, act single. You know, one tequila, two tequila, three tequila floor. You know, we, we had nicknames like grass, uh, zigzag, and mine was FedEx, because if I went over to party at your house, I would absolutely positively be there overnight. And uh, <laughs> uh, 
um, you know, it's really interesting. Um, of that, guy, uh, that group of guys, uh, one guy has 35 years. He was my first sponsor. Um, by the way, you, so you can judge me properly, my, my, my sobriety date is October 21st, 1986. So I have 33 years. Um, one guy had 20 years. He started drinking again. Um, and then the other two guys are dead after just, you know, long bouts of in and out of the program, you know, jail institutions, then an ultimate price. And I got to see how bad my life would have been had I taken that route. Honestly, I, I was a part of their lives till the day they died, uh, trying to get them sober. Um, when I was 22, that's when things started to unravel. I was dating this woman from the age of 16 to 22. We were living together, we were engaged, and, and I caught her cheating, and um, it broke me. Man, because I had no self-esteem. I had none. All my self-esteem was wrapped up in her. And so when uh, that relationship fell apart, I fell apart, you know, and, and um, I don't want to feel. We don't want to feel. <laughs> yeah. Men are like mascara. We run at the first sign of emotion, right? Uh, I, uh, I didn't want to feel. I wanted to numb out, and I knew exactly how to get there. We know how to get there. So from about 22 to 23, to me, is pretty much a blur. It was just, just one huge blackout. And uh, that's when the consequences started for me. Uh, the arrests, uh, crashing in cars, coming to an emergency rooms. You know the routine, guys. I mean, that was it, you know? I mean, it was just one thing after another and, and, and uh, and that's when I first went to the program, when I was 23. But I went in with the world's worst attitude. You know, I, uh, I had a bad attitude. I took everybody's inventory. You're looking for the differences, not the similarities. So I related to nothing, as opposed to now. I look for the similarities and I relate to people, right? I relate to everyone. Um, you know, a bad attitude is like a flat tire. If you don't fix it, you're not going to go very far. You know, so I, I gave myself no shot at recovery at that point in time in my life. Um, the other thing is, is uh, I had these reservations about God. You know, I heard a lot of the God stuff, and, and, I, and I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, altar boy, knew Mass by heart, but it never really sunk into my heart, right? Um, I just went through the motions. And so when I came into the program, and there's all this God stuff, at that time, you said God, I heard religion. You said spirituality, I heard religion. And what I realized later on when I finally came in two years later was is that I had a child's perception of God, which was very fear-based. Everything that a child perceives is fear-based. So I learned about God and, and this whole spiritual way of living from a fear-based child. And it was fire and brimstone and a punishing God and a God that was keeping score. Um, and, you know, later on when I did finally come back into the program, a little bit more beaten down, a little more ready... Uh, I heard somebody say religion is for people who are afraid to go to hell. Spirituality is for people that have been there. And that clicked for me. I could wrap my head around spirituality at that point in time. I said, okay, all right, I can do that. I can't do religion. I can do spirituality at that time. Um, it's funny, interesting. Um, last week, one of my sponsees was going back home, and I knew it was going to be his last day. And... Uh, just outside of our, our home group meeting, the Gator meeting, and, and it's a church, Presbyterian church, and I looked at him and I said, Mike, are you ready to get baptized? He's like, what? I said, we can do it right here. All we need is water. And an ordained preacher, and here he is, Pastor Tom. 
And we took him outside. We found a little courtyard area. We had a little prayer circle. And we baptized this guy, you know. And um, so that's how far along I've come. <laughs> how much I've changed over the years. Um, and I talked to him this morning, and he's doing great. He's doing awesome. Uh, he had that spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Um, all right, so... Um, let me get back to drinking. So it didn't work for me. I had to go out and destroy my life for two more years. And, um, you know, it just got worse. You know, it's a progressive disease. Never gets any better. Always gets worse. And it did for me, too. You know, so the blackouts were like two and three days at a time, which was alarming to me. And um, so um, <laughs> it's funny. I love yeah. I love that I don't have to ask those three blackout questions. You know the ones when you come out of a blackout? You know the ones. Who the hell are you? <laughs> right? <laughs> Where the hell am I? <laughs> and my personal favorite is, who pissed in my pants? <laughs> oh, don't have to ask those questions anymore. Um, you know, it's interesting. When I was working at that store, I used to um, mock people that come into the store first thing in the morning and get vodka and, and Old Links 840s and things like that. And I always said, that's, that's never going to be me. Well, that did become me. That was me, right? The DTs were kicking in. I had to do it, man. I had to do that walk of shame, man, with a handful of change, walking up to the counter, asking for that generic vodka just to cut the edge. That's where my life had come. That's, that's where, you know, this, this thing, this disease had taken me. And, um, you know, it's funny. We, we started out as alcohol connoisseurs, and then we become alcohol kind of sewers. <laughs> that was me. Um, I was uh, heavily in debt. Uh, I was worse than broke. I was heavily in debt. Um, lost my apartment. You know, was doing some urban camping and uh, a lot of couch surfing. And... Uh, you know, it's always funny. I was so saturated with alcohol um, that I would get, I would just, you know, I didn't throw up. I wasn't a throw up or some guys throw up. I didn't throw up. I just, just processed it. But I would sweat. I'd get these crazy night sweats and I'd literally sweat vodka. I'd sweat alcohol and I'd sweat all this vodka all over their, these people's couches. I was the couch killer. <laughs> um, I had to make some couch amends. I really did. <laughs> I really did go to these people and say, I got to pay for your couch. <laughs> what? <laughs> um... You know, mentally, I, I was totally losing it. You know, I was into that alcohol psychosis. And I thought I really had gone too far. And I had completely lost my mind. You know, the self-loathing voices in my head just wouldn't stop. Um, I love in the book, it describes this as, uh, can't differentiate the true from the false, uh, in full flight from reality, outright mental defective, my personal favorite, <laughs> you know, let's face it, we're all here because we're not all there, right, you know, <laughs> and I was definitely on that bullet train to crazy town, for sure, man, I was three gallons of crazy in a one-gallon bucket, and it was exhausting cleaning up the mess nonstop, and, uh, um, you know, I, luckily through this program, I did get it back, and I didn't completely lose my mind. And I actually did go back to school and got my, you know, got my bachelor's degree and went on and got my master's degree, which is amazing considering I completely thought, thought that I totally lost my mind. Um, but let's, <laughs> hey, I, uh, 
I got the monkey off my back a long time ago, but the circus is still in town, okay? <laughs> Just, yeah. Uh, but here's the good news, guys. You know, light shines through only those people that are cracked. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's us. Um, so, you know, mentally it was bad, but, you know, my bottom, uh, I had hit so many bottoms over the years, um, you know, financially and physically, but uh, emotionally, that's, the last one was it for me. Uh, those self-loathing voices in my head turned into suicidal thoughts. And I thought about suicide all the time. I was obsessed with suicide. I couldn't stop drinking and I couldn't keep living the way I was living. And the only way that I thought was to check out, to leave. Just, just, this is it, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. And uh, I had first of many spiritual experiences. I was at a um, friend's house and I was drinking uh, all day long and, and I picked up the phone and I called this girl that I'd been dating for some time and she'd been going to Al-Anon for four months. You know, that should be a hint. If you drive somebody to Al-Anon, you are an alcoholic. <laughs> so I called this woman and, and my, my intention was to, to say goodbye, to tell her I'm, I can't do it anymore. I gotta, I'm checking out. I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. That was my intention and uh, I, I owed it to her. I felt I owed it to her. But when I got her on the phone, that's not what came out of my mouth. What came out of my mouth were those three magic words, I need help. At that time, I didn't know where that came from. I know now where that came from. Right? Um, my first of many spiritual experiences. And uh, about seven months, you know, she picked me up the next day, took me to a couple meetings. She knew enough that she, I had to do this on my own, so she cut me loose. But I can tell you, seven months and three weeks later, I had a very traumatic uh, um, experience. Um, I had my spine and my testicles removed, um, but, but don't worry, the wedding presents were nice. <laughs> you guys are what? The newcomer's going, what? <laughs> it really get it, guys. <laughs> so yeah, I got married at seven months. Uh, I would not recommend that. Uh, two dinglings don't make a bell. Um, you know, relationships, the first year of sobriety is like pouring miracle grow on those character defects, right? You know, and uh, you, you guys know what the relationship acronym stands for, right? R-E-L-A-T-I-O-N-S-H-I-P. Really exciting love affair turns into outrageous nightmare. Sobriety hangs in peril. <laughs> They're, uh, <laughs> some of you guys can relate to that, huh? I think all of us can. Um, you know, they're going to do a new reality show on dating the first year in sobriety. You know what they're going to call it? World's deadliest catch. Uh, you know, here's the, here's the miracle of it, guys. Um, I'm still married to that woman. You know? Um, luckily, she had a strong Al-Anon program. I had a strong AA program, and we grew in parallel tracks. And we made God and the program first. We didn't make each other our higher powers, and we grew together. Um, you know, I married Mrs. Wright. I just didn't know her first name was always. <laughs> uh, yeah. She's also in that other 12-step that other program, on and on and on and on. <laughs> yeah. uh, guys, there's only two ways to argue with a woman. Neither one works. <laughs> Ken, I'm stuck in a wife joke and I can't get out. <laughs> I, I, 
I got I I'm stuck. I uh, whew, uh, right monkey. Yeah, it's really crazy. Um, so uh, <laughs> this sums up my relationship with my wife. She wanted this cat. She wanted a cat. I didn't want a cat, so we compromised. We got a cat, right? <laughs> so this this cat, this cat's an older cat. It's kind of psychotic. So she takes the thing to the vet, and she comes back with cat Prozac. Now, did you know there was such a thing as cat Prozac? I didn't know there was such a thing as cat Prozac. So this cat's taking cat Prozac, and all it's doing is making it foam at the mouth. So now she's got a psychotic cat that foams at the mouth. And not only that, she talks to it as if she, the cat understands what she's saying. <laughs> I told that to my dog. We had a good laugh. Uh, <laughs> Boy, am I off track. <laughs> oh, wow. Where am I going to go with this? Um, all right. Let me get back to being a newcomer. So um, I, uh, I didn't do the rehab, sober living thing that everyone does now. I did the shake and bake in the rooms, man. So I'm, I'm in the rooms. And I'm shaking. and I'm sweating. I'm terribly insecure, so I'm afraid to talk to anyone. My teeth are messed up from neglect, so I don't want to smile. I'm wearing 70s clothes in 1986. Uh, I look like a cross between Herman Munster and Beetlejuice. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting at a meeting, and, and, and this, this old-timer reaches over to me, and he reaches out, and he says, Hey, Sonny, uh, welcome. You look like you're new. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh. I'm all like digged in. I said, how did you know? And you know what he started to do? He started to laugh. You know what I started to do? I started to laugh too. And so began the healing of laughter. He, laughter is the healing music of this program. And you've been playing 33 years of beautiful music for me. Laughter is the sound of recovery. I love that. I love hearing laughter. You know, and it's interesting, you know, I talk about this traumatic stuff in my childhood and I talk about it because it's part of my story, but I also talk about it because all of us come into this program with some form of trauma, some worse than others. But it doesn't matter how much trauma you come into this program with, there's going to be people in here that will love you enough to help you unpack that baggage one small piece at a time. And thank God that I let you love me until I could love myself. Because I hated myself. I wanted to die. You guys loved me back to health. You guys loved me back to health. You know, and I remember early in sobriety, uh, it's funny how you have these like little mini spiritual experiences. And uh, I heard uh, an Eagle song, Desperado, come on the radio. And, and one of the lines that says, Desperado, when are you going to come to your senses and quit riding fences and open the gate? You always say it's raining when there's a rainbow above you. You better let somebody love you. You better let somebody love you before it's too late. Hit me right in the heart. Oh, I heard it. That's when I heard it. I heard it, man. So, uh, <clears throat> I've got about 10 minutes to go, and I want to get a lot of recovery in in a, in a brief amount of time. So, um, I'm going to talk about the circle and the triangle and versions of that circle and triangle. You know, our, our circle and triangle that goes on our chips, you know, and it's just the, the, the three legacies are unity, service, and recovery. Right? Unity is we go to meetings and we fellowship. Recovery of the 12 steps and 12 traditions. Right? The steps tell us how it works. The, the traditions tell us why it works. The steps keep us from drinking. The traditions protect us, AA from us. Right? And then uh, recovery, you know, service. And service is, is, you know, we help others, right? So unity, service, and recovery, right? Um, but there's so many other versions of that, and it's interesting. 
Um, I don't know if, uh, if our founders did this on purpose, but there's a lot of threes in our program, and I'm going to run through some because it, it kind of captures everything in the program in a, in a brief period of time. You know, the next one, it's mentioned on page uh, 98, and it says something to the effect, I always paraphrase, burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone, the only condition being that he trusts God, clean house, and help others. Right? Trust God. Steps 1, 2, and 3, and steps 11. Clean house, steps four through ten. Those are the spiritual blockages, right? And then, you know, clean, and then, you know, be of service. That's step 12, right? And in, in, uh, I think it's in chapter two, it mentions that, you know, our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depends on our constant thought of others and how we may meet our needs, right? And then in the beginning of working with other chapters, it says practical experience, um, practical experience, just spaced out. Um, no, nothing so... Yeah, I just spaced out. What? <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I'm rushing through this. You know, and, and uh, you know, what I've learned over time is that, you know, we make a living on what we get, but we make a life on, on what we give. You know, and I love the fact that we have so many um, uh, promises. It's, you know, we don't have just the nine-step promises in our book. Every step has a promise, and I hope that your sponsors take you through all those promises. And... Uh, the 12-step promises are some of my favorite. You know, it, you know one of them is, is uh, life will take on new meaning. As we watch others recover and we see them help uh, others, and we watch loneliness vanish, and we see a whole fellowship grow up about us, and we gain a whole new experience in life. And then there's another one that's on page 159, and it says something to the effect that it says, uh, um, Though they knew that they needed to help others to stay sober, that became secondary. It was transcended by the sheer happiness they found in completely giving themselves to others. And see, that's where I am in, the, in my life, right? You know, I work with a lot of people, and I know that, um, you know, at times it's difficult. You know, my phone's constantly blowing up, and, and I'm getting pulled in so many different directions. And, but I know that, you know, my happiness is directly proportional to how willing I am to give myself to others, right? Um, so what are the other circles in the triangles? Allergy of the body, obsession of the mind, spiritual malady, right? Allergy of the body, you know? An allergy that is defined as an as a abnormal reaction to a foreign substance. My abnormal reaction is I start to drink, I can't stop. My wife, she's a normie. She orders a glass of wine, she drinks a half of it, she says, I'm feeling it, she stops. Pisses me off every time. I'm pretty sure she does it just to annoy me, right? You know, we have a friend in our, in our home group, and he says that uh, if I could drink normally, I'd wake up every morning and start drinking. <laughs> uh, um, you know, obsession of the mind. You know, that great obsession of every alcoholic is that we can drink like other people, right? That's the great obsession of every alcoholic, right? You know, the, the illusion of this, you know, the persistence of this illusion is astonishing, right? We pursue it into the gates of insanity and death, right? Um, we're obsessive people, you know, and um, we are. We're just, you know, <laughs> normal people have a couple thousand thoughts a day. We have the same thought a couple thousand times a day, right? <laughs> um, you know, and then that spiritual malady, right? And um, I wish I could get more into the spiritual malady, but, you know, it's interesting. Is like, how do we find that? How do we find faith? And I'll tell you, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're struggling with that, just stick around. Just get in the middle of this thing. Believe that I believe. And that's enough of a start, you know. And if you go to enough meetings, you're going to hear that beautiful language of the heart. You know, and you're going to hear God speak through others. Right? And you're going to see these miracles unfold. And you're going to start to think that maybe, just maybe, that can be me too. Right? You know, and um, 
and I do a lot of things to keep me um, connected to my higher power, like I strap in the passenger side. If you go to my car right now, passenger side strapped in for my higher power. Whenever if I find coins, I pick it up and I thank God for my sobriety and everything that I have today. You do that, you're going to find change at the weirdest places at just the right time, right? When I walk through the door, I say in my head, you first. Let my, let my higher power in, right? I don't know if you guys noticed, but there's an empty chair up here. It's the first thing I did when I walked in. Put the empty chair up here for my higher power. So whatever it takes for you to find your higher power, you know, and, uh, you know, and I know that one of the things that is really for us is uh, we find, um, we, we get faith through challenges and difficulties in life. Um, we learn the hard way. Um, and as we walk through these things, we, you know, we, this too shall pass, it always does. We get to the other side, and we have that aha moment. We have that epiphany, right? We have that mini spiritual experience. And it's so funny. I work with a lot of guys. I get a lot of phone calls. There's all these crisis phone calls. And we always go through the obligatory, well, what was your part? You know, do you owe any amends? And as we get through that kind of stuff, we start talking about it. And, you know, it really comes down to, you know, it's like we don't have emotional breakdowns. We have emotional breakthroughs, right? And emotional... Emotional pain is, is just fear leaving our body. You know, we claim, we, 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 thanks. Uh, we, um, we always complain about the obstacles in our path until we find out that the obstacles are our path, right? Um, so what are the other circles in the triangles? Uh, mind, body, and spirit. The original circle in the triangle. Mind, you know, read or write something, program every day. Body, do something physical every day. Sex counts. <laughs> preferably with somebody else, uh, you know, and spirit, right? You know, spirit, and, and I, there's a little thing on page 25, and, and, uh, and it says to the effect, there's just one thing left for us to do, and that is to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools left at our feet, for we had found much of heaven, and we've been rocketing into the fourth dimension, into an existence we never thought possible. The fact is this, and just it, that we have had a deep and effective spiritual experience that has revolutionized our whole attitude and outlook upon life, our fellows, and God's universe. I love that. That sums it up for me, man. For we had found much of heaven, and we've been rocketing into the fourth dimension, into an existence we never thought possible. I don't know about you guys, but that's, for me, that's the best high I've ever had. No crash, no hangover. It's free. And I get as much as what I want. All I have to do is tap into a power greater than myself. So what are the other ones? Um, how do we get sober? H-O-W. Honesty, openness, willingness. Right? It's listed on page 568 of the three essentials. Um, the key to life, rigorous self-honesty. What do we share? Experience, strength, and hope. The first three steps. I can't, he can, so let him. This disease wants to kill us. It's cunning, baffling, and powerful. So many. I, they, they did, I don't know if they did this on purpose, but whenever I feel squirrely, I think about my circles and the triangles, and I, and I say, okay, what, did I, what, did I, what am I not doing, or what should I be doing? Right? And, and the, the, the one that I like the most, the string is, is if you're feeling, if you're feeling restless, irritable, and discontent, or suffering from pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization, you may want to uncover, discover, and discard so you can be happy, joyous, and free. That was the program in a nutshell, guys. You know, in, you know, in, in, in less than 10 minutes, covering a whole bunch. I only got a, about a couple minutes left, so... Um, how am I going to wrap this up? You know... Um, You know, I'm going to tell you what happened to my dad. And bear with me just a couple minutes. So I didn't want to leave you hanging with dear old dad. It's kind of an interesting story. So I called the Catholic Church to find out about my dad. And 
Unfortunately, he had passed away three months earlier. And, uh, but they did hook me up to a couple of priests that had worked with him. And I called him up, and the first guy worked out in the San Fernando Mission, and he didn't believe anything I was having to say, but he agreed to meet with me anyways. Went to his office, walked through the door. I'm standing at the doorway. He took one look at me. His jaw literally dropped, and he said, you're his son. So at least now I knew what the dude looked like. <laughs> uh, and uh, he told me about my father. My father was from Ireland, Irish Mike. Uh, he was from Ireland. He played professional rugby before the seminary. Very outgoing guy. He did inspirational sermons. He used to pack the church. But he was an alcoholic. The next guy was kind of interesting. He um, had a different perspective. He had actually left the church and gotten married and had a couple kids. But he worked with my father for, for many, many years. And uh, I spoke with him for hours. And uh, as he's telling me about my dad, uh, I'm telling him about my life. And at the very end of it, he says, you know, it's too bad your dad didn't get to know you because if he would have, he would have been very proud of you. See, so that's what a, all a son wants to hear from a father is, I'm proud of you. And so I got to close that chapter of my life. So I thought. 25 years later, moved from Los Angeles down here to San Clemente. I'm speaking in a meeting on a Friday night. I tell that story. A couple days later, at a meeting I've been going to for about six months, basically sitting in the same place next to this older Irish gentleman named Charlie, and before the meeting, Charlie leans over. He says, Mike, I heard your pitch on Friday. I really enjoyed it. What was your father's name? And I said, my father's name is da-da-da-da. And he says, oh my God, I knew him in Ireland. They grew up together. They played, they played rugby together. They're even related through marriage. I'm like listening to this going, whoa. <laughs> I'm like blown away at what I'm hearing here, right? He was such a good friend of my father that uh, my father helped him immigrate to the United States. And he was there in 1947 when my father said his first mass in South Pasadena. And uh, when you say your first mass, that's when you become an ordained priest. And, and he said that they gave out a commemorative card at, that, 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 at the thing. And, and he pulls out his wall and he says, you know, I've been saving this for 65 years, but I think it belongs to you. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, this is like, I was just like blown away. He also had like pictures of my father and... and um, um, and he had that one question that I didn't know, and that was, is that, uh, did my dad ever get sober? And he did. Towards the end of his death, he did finally get sober. So, uh, you know, I, um, I am out of time. I'm actually over time. But <laughs> I, uh, we get to define a higher power of our own understanding, but we can also define a spiritual experience of our own understanding. And I hope that you guys do that and allow yourself to do that. And don't set the bar so high. Don't wait for the burning bush or the room to fill with a white light like it did with, for Bill W. Right? For me, it's anything that changes my attitude or perspective in a positive way. You know, it's like when I said those magic words, I need help. Or I hear a small child describe an alcoholic, somebody who laughs and smiles a lot and doesn't drink alcohol. Or it's when I do my fourth step and I feel physically lighter and more part of this program. Or when I do the ninth step and I realize that I'm enough fault and all, and I accept myself. Because when we accept ourselves, we're no longer crucified by the, the burden of needing other people to accept us. See, it's the small things in life that can become spiritual experiences. It's a spiritual experience if you allow it to be a spiritual experience. And no one can take that away from you. And I hope you do that.
I hope you do that. See, I do it so often that I no longer believe that we're human beings having a spiritual experience. I believe we're spiritual beings having a human experience. Honestly, I do this all day long, right? It's extreme moments of gratitude or tears of joy. Those, those coincidences that feel like God shots. Is it odd or is it God, right? You know, and the one that I love the most is when I can step back in life and I just go, oh my God, I almost missed this. I can say to myself, I almost missed this. And, and in the 30 plus years, I've been, had so many opportunities where I've been able to step back in life and say that. You know, I'm going to end with this. I, um, I opened two gifts from God this morning, my eyes. Today, I love life, I love this program, and I love all of you, and just think, I almost missed this. Thanks.